step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Hello and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig. And believe it or not, we're at episode 37, which is very, very exciting. My guest today is a uh, someone whom I've never met before, and I find that very exciting, don't you? Sure, I do too. It's like a blank slate. Yes. Right. Your name is Sharon Hart Green. Welcome, Sharon Hart Green. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And you are a novelist. Yes. Uh, you are a PhD or a professor at U of T in Hebrew and, and, and Jewish literature. That's right. Um, so we're going to cover a lot of interesting ground today. We're going to talk about someone who was very important to you. Actually, you actually wrote your thesis about was Agnon. Right. right? Yes. Shmuel Yosef Agnon, uh, other known, otherwise known as Shai Agnon. And what was his real name? Do you remember his real Shmuel name? Shmuel Yosef Chachkes. Yeah, something like that. Right, exactly. Chachkes. And where, where was he born? He was born in a, a little place in Galicia called um, Buchach. Buchach. Yeah, yes. yeah. Buchach. Anyway. So, so he was Chachkes from Buchach. I love that. Yes. So he's a fascinating individual, and it's not surprising whatsoever that you taught about him, that you wrote about him. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for yes. Literature. Yes. I think he's the only Israeli that ever did, or yes. someone who wrote in Hebrew. Yes, yeah. he is. He shared the Nobel Prize with Nellie Sachs, who was right. another Jewish writer, a poet, but she wrote in German, I believe. And you, you also wrote a, a book on the poetry of Chava Pinchas Cohen. That's right, yes. And um, I want to get into that later because I actually read the story about how you met her. Oh, you did? Yeah, yes. it was very happenstance Absolutely. Right? It, it felt beshert. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting when things happen that way. We, yes. we should define what beshert means. Yes. What, Faded. How would you define beshert? Faded. Um Faded, yes. Faded. That's how I, I usually translate it. Yeah. It's something that just was meant to be. It was meant to be, right? Yes. And then finally, you've written a novel. That's right. And it's called Come Back From Me. I haven't read the novel yet, but I'm going to buy it. Okay, great. Uh, but I read everything about it. Yes. <laughs> so you know quite a bit about yeah, it. Yeah, consider me your Cole's notes today, right? <laughs> so I'm really excited about talking to a writer because you guys are a very, very unique type of person. Writers are different, aren't they? I think so, yes. Um, we fit somewhere between artists and um, journalists, I guess you could say. At least novelists do. You know, we're artistic, but we express our artistry through words. So somehow, you know, we're not pure artists. We're artists that um, craft our, or at least channel our artistic uh, inclinations into words and paragraphs and it's uh, it's a little bit different than pure art which is I think more instinctive than anything you do I think so I think drawing and painting and even creating music 
is more instinctive. Whereas when you're writing, you, there's a, there is a lot of instinct at play, but then the editing process is highly intellectual. So that's where I feel the scholarly or the even journalistic aspect comes in. Well, I tell you something, I'm an artist. Yes. And there is an editing process to art. I'm sure there is. There, there yes. is. Yes. You sit and you look at that canvas. In fact, most of the artistry really takes the time taken up to paint a picture goes into looking at that canvas. Yes. As it might be that white piece of paper in front of you. Yes. And then once you figure, okay, this is my first draft or I'm done, you go back to it and you go, nah. I need to change that. Yes. And the problem is, and you don't have a prob this problem in writing, the problem with that is you can lose the picture. I know. Yeah. Yes. Because I used to draw and paint myself. And when I you know were exactly younger, yeah. when I was younger. And I know. And often I end up ruining it and having to throw it out. And you can never get it back. Right. Whereas with writing, uh, especially with the computer, you can never lose what you wrote because you can save all the previous drafts and always go back to it. In fact, Whenever I make cuts, I, I'm always hesitant to make major cuts in my work, but when I do, I put them in a special file. And I often tell people this, don't be afraid to make major cuts as long as you save them. And when you save them, what you can do is tell yourself, I can always use it later. But you know what generally happens? You never use them again. You never look at them, You right? never look at them. But it's very comforting to know that those cuts are there, that that material is not lost forever. If you were to take out a major chunk of something you've written, does it, does it hurt your heart? It used to. But now that I have this little technique that I use where I have somewhere where I save it, yeah. it doesn't hurt that hard oh, okay. because I know okay. that it's there. I can always go back and access it. Okay. Very good. Very good. I, I always figure the image that comes to mind is when you're working in the old editing rooms on film yes. and you would splice out, you know, a foot and a half or two feet of film, you'd put it on the floor and everybody would step all over it. Yes. It was destroyed. Right. Right. But so in that writing, decision. You, you're writing, you put it away, you file it away. I file it away. I, yeah. And it's there if I need it. Yeah, yeah. Well, somebody asked you once, uh, you were interviewed uh, for an article, and, and they asked you what's the most difficult piece for you in writing, and you said it's editing, and, and you said, because uh, I always figure, okay, my first draft, I'm good, I'm good to go. Yes. But that's not the case. No, it's never the case. You think it's good, but then when right. you show it to someone, right. for one thing, it's always good to have other readers, and when you show it to someone, they see it differently, and even the, the writer, as you know, me, um, when I look at it a day later, a week later, a month later, I see all the flaws. And then what you think was perfect is often terrible. And, and do you get hurt when someone reads your piece and they slowly look up at you and they go, hmm, it's not bad? Oh, it's very painful. It is terrible. Painful. I know, me yes, too. Yes. Me too. Because, you know, all artists are sensitive. Overly. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, oversensitive. You're right. And, oh, yeah, it's terribly painful. So how did you learn how to deal with that? Uh, you you never really get over it. I don't think you ever do. Um, but at the same time, if you want to write and you want to publish, you have to be able to take it because you will never continue if you can't take it. Because number one, the writing world is full of rejection. Yes, it is. Uh, trying to get an agent, trying to get something published. You're going to be rejected a hundred times yeah. until someone takes it right. or you'll or until you get an agent, etc. So you have to be able to forge ahead. And I have my techniques on how I, I continue after rejection. Oh, what is it? <laughs> I developed a technique and 
it works. Whenever I'm rejected, I try twice or three times as hard. So uh. let's say, for, for example, when I was first trying to get an agent, uh, the, the wisdom is you should only query 10 agents at a time. Well, you know, I get my first rejection. I thought, forget that. I'm not going to, uh, you know, they rejected me. I'm querying 20 agents. I'm querying 30 agents. <laughs> <Yes>. Just lahachis, <laughs> you know, that expression, just in spite. So that's how I deal with rejection. I Somehow I'm seeing your mother in the background. <laughs> oh, we're going to get those neighbors of ours. <laughs> no, my mother was a very gentle soul. Well, she, she yeah, was gentle. She okay. Was. okay, I, I apologize where, to your mom. I don't know where I get this from, but yeah. it just was this feeling like, no, I'm not going to let them do this to me. I am going to try even harder yeah. because otherwise you just feel depressed and, and downtrodden and you give up. And so really there are two choices. Should I give up or should I fight harder? And I... And I found that if I fight harder, I feel better. Is your uh, sense of self, your embrace of yourself, is it pretty much intact enough so that you can write a novel, put it out there, have people read it, some love it, and some just don't? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I thought my sense of self was intact, but you know, when the novel first came out yeah. and I didn't have universally um, positive responses, I had a lot of, po mostly positive, but then when the odd friend just was lukewarm or just said, oh yeah, I read it, it was good, I was crushed. Yeah, right. Exactly. I was really crushed. Yeah. yeah. Because you want that, that, you know, feeling of reinforcement after you write something like that and especially after it takes years you hope at least your friends will you know come forward and tell you how brilliant it is and not all of them do you know there are those friends who really understand what it means to encourage a friend to yes. be part of what they're doing and then there are others we'll call them tier two who just don't have that sense so i did commercial radio for a number of years and yes. i insisted that my friends would listen to it and that was unfair. That wasn't right. And one of my friends told me once, I didn't listen to it, and I hung up the phone. <laughs> and then I realized I'm being silly. This is nonsense. Same thing with my art. I have a boys' night on Thursday night. My buddies come over. We've been doing this for like 40 years. Really? And they come in, and very often the look on my art, they go, nah, I really don't like that. It's dark and it's sad, just like all your other pieces. Um, so I've learned to live with it. Yeah, because you realize they just don't get it. It doesn't mean that it's bad. Or they're right, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe they're right. Well, is there right and wrong? I suppose there, there is. There's no, there's no right or wrong when it comes to taste. No, right? Not really. No. no, not really. But, uh, you know, there's better and worse. Yeah. Like nobody's going to come along and say Dostoevsky was an awful writer. Nobody's exactly. going to say that, you right? You can't say that. Right. No, there are... There are standards and there are ways in which one can judge works of art. There are criteria. Yes. Not what, you know, I'm not a relativist. I don't believe everything is equally as valid as the next. But on the other hand, there is such a thing as subjectivity. And, uh, you know, what is subjectively uh, moving or beautiful to one person may not be that to the other. So that's another factor. And those two... Um, Factors seem to be in conflict with one another, one another, the objective criterion of what makes for something that is good versus the, um, the criterion which is based on subjective reality. Yeah, which is a tough piece. Yes, it's dialectical. That's all I can say. Yeah, I saw you use that word. Professors always use that word. I know, I know. We can't and nobody knows what it means. 
what does it mean, dialectical? Dialectical, having two opposite sides work in tandem at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I looked. Being that, both true. I looked that up recently. Are there words that you constantly look up, like one, and you just can never remember? Oh, the absolutely. Yes. Like what? Um. Oh, I can't think of any right yeah, now, but I, I, I know there are certain words that I always have to say, what does that mean again? Or you're in a conversation with someone, yes. someone uses a particular word, yes. and you're nodding your head, yeah, yeah. And you feel embarrassed to say, what does that mean? <laughs> you don't want to say, what does it mean, <laughs> right, right. So folks, I'm here with uh, Sharon Hart Green, who is a novelist, who's a professor of, uh, of Hebrew literature. Yes. And uh, I'm actually delighted to do this interview because, as I said before, you and I have never met before. No. So why that is so important to me is because uh, the essence of Hat Radio, of this podcast, it is to create an authenticity, an honest schmooze between two people, myself and somebody else. I had uh, breakfast with Marty Goldberg at the Bagel Place over here on Wilson in Toronto. Do you ever go there? I haven't been there in years, but... Yeah. It was my dad's favorite, my late father's favorite place. Was it? Yeah. Oh, what did he order? Do you know? Bagel World. The Bagel World on Wilson? Yeah, yeah. What did he order? I think a bagel, bagel and coffee. He didn't have like scrambled eggs or something? No, I think just a bagel and coffee. Oh, okay. The did joke was is that um, the bagels became so seedy because they used to drop them on the floor before <laughs> serving them. <laughs> was that the joke? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I heard know, that told once. So, so I'm, I'm with Marty Goldberg, and he's a marketing guy, a lovely human being. And I asked him for in, insight on the show because I'm taking this really seriously. And he said to me, I really enjoy the show a lot, but I'm not exactly sure what you're trying to do. Which was a really salient point and mm -hmm. something that I brought up a few times during my... It's almost like I read your piece. Uh, I didn't get it. Like that. Yes. So really what I wanted to do was just talk about that for a moment and just to express the fact that I used to do commercial radio and yes. when I did, we did very short interviews, three minutes, four minutes. That was very, very challenging for me because I want to get to the essence of who somebody is. And it's almost impossible in three or four minutes. You can't. It's impossible. You can't. Like yes. I'm hoping when you leave here today that I'll have a real good sense of who you are, almost like a friendship is budding. Yes, yes. You know, that we were able to establish a rapport which is warm, which is comfortable, which is open and authentic. Now, why do I want to do that? I want to do that because I think it's so important for people to hear a certain level of intimacy, mm -hmm. to feel comfortable in our world, and to learn something from it. So as an example, when you speak about your writing and when you speak about the successes and the fears, there are going to be a lot of listeners out there who are going to sit back and go, yeah, I get that. That's me too. Yes. Right? And people need to hear that. They do, right? Yes. Because right. Because so many people are consumed by their fears. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that there are brilliant writers out there in our world who never pick up a pen to write. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are. They're just too fearful. That's right. Yeah. I know somebody who wrote a 400-page novel, and uh, they will never submit it anywhere because they're too scared. Yes. Yeah. And that's unfortunate, isn't it? Yes, it's absolutely unfortunate. And uh, fear is such a hampering uh, aspect of most people's personalities, yeah. I think, but especially the artistically inclined. Do you see yourself as a fearful person or otherwise? Um, half and half. I think part of me is fearful and part of me is brave. Again, that dialectic at work there. Yeah, yeah. 
The brave part is you, you get a rejection, you hold your head high, and you go, screw this, and you just head right into the battle, right? Yeah, after I, I weep for a half an hour. Do you weep? Sure. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. And what's, so, the, what's the fearful part? The fearful part is that, um, you know, I'll never achieve what I hope I, I will achieve, that it's impossible that I'm banging my head against a brick wall and that nothing will ever change. So that's the fear. Oh, I see what you're saying. So ultimately, would you like to be world-renowned in your writing? Is that a big piece for you? Um, I don't know if I... Sure. I mean, I think that I would love that to happen, but really not world-renowned like Jacqueline Suzanne or, or you know, these kitschy writers. Yeah. I don't want that kind of fame. I would like to be able to touch people. I would like people to read my work so that they'll feel that I've taught them something about life, about themselves, about the human personality. So I don't necessarily want fame for fame's sake. Yes. I would like to achieve some kind of fame in order for my works to be appreciated. Yeah, no, I concur with that. Do you want wealth? Um, I'm not as concerned with that. Yeah. We live comfortably. I don't feel that money is the essence of happiness. I think that money can make you happy to an extent, and then after that, it causes you tsuris. That's what I've heard. I know. It was the wisdom That's of my parents, too. They used to always say, look at that wealthy person. Are they any happier? Yeah, yeah. they don't look happy. Yeah, they always used to say. What did your dad do, by the way? My dad worked for the government his entire life. Doing what? He um, quit high school in, I think it was grade 11, and it was during the Depression. He took the exam to work for the government service for the federal government um, and he passed this was very unusual because most Jews were not allowed in yeah and he was offered a job with the what was called then the unemployment insurance commission and he was a office boy was he yes he was an office boy and he worked his way up he ended up working for what was called Indian Affairs Indian Affairs and Northern Development oh. used to visit Indian reservations oh. And then he worked for what was then called Canada Manpower. And I guess that's what he ended up working for employment. Yeah. Was he an articulate man? Uh, he was a very quiet man. Was he? Very quiet. Did he tell sweet. you about the reserves? Yeah. He used to come home and bring me artifacts. I still have them. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah. He, he wasn't such a big traveler. He didn't enjoy traveling that much. So that aspect of it didn't really excite him. He was a homebody. But uh, I think he found it interesting. And he was born in Toronto, was he, he not? He was. He was born in Toronto. Right, right. Yeah, his it's parents were European, but he was born in Toronto. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because the book that you wrote, again, which we'll talk about later, yes. has to do with a Holocaust survivor. But your parents were not, and you're not second generation, no, right? No, I'm not. And yeah, it's, I, I love that piece. And again, I don't want to get into it right now, but you were affected by your best friend who did come from a survivor family, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so... Just to get back to what I was saying before, really hat radio is supposed to be a schmooze, almost like we would have a, around a bonfire or uh, sitting in our living room late at night with like really dear friends, maybe having a little beer, maybe smoking a joint and uh, just enjoying ourselves and talking and getting really to the nitty gritty of what life is all about. Yes. Um, just to clarify a little bit, I think one of the words that I used in my description is the word intimacy. So listen to what intimacy is. Intimacy means deeply knowing another person and feeling deeply known. That's mm. compelling, Yes, right? that is good. Yeah. Yes. Like, as I speak to you, I, I'm getting this sense of who you are 
Are you getting that sense of me? Yes, I think I am. You are? Yes. Especially okay. that joint part. <laughs> I'm yeah, just well, teasing. I just had to I'm shock you. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to, you know, your face didn't change at all when I said the joint. Not, not for a second. You were like uh, stoic. Teasing. Yeah. You really were. Okay. We'll leave that alone. Okay. All right? We'll leave it alone. Uh, that doesn't happen in a conversation in a bar or during a lovely day at the beach. Um, it doesn't happen in the first weeks and months of a new exciting relationship. Um, intimacy is defined as mental, emotional, or physical closeness, such as a personal remark, a warm and familiar setting, or detailed knowledge about a subject. The close relationship you have with your spouse when you can share everything is an example of intimacy. Yes. So clearly that's not what we're establishing here. But again, I, I like to think that because we talk about stuff that other people don't necessarily talk about. Yes. I ask questions that other people don't ask. I think there is a certain type of intimacy here. Yes, you uh, dig deep. I know that from your other podcasts. Yeah. You like, like to ask difficult questions. I think it's important. I think it's important. When I interviewed Steve Paikin, when the interview was over, he said, uh, I've been interviewed many times, but I've never been interviewed like that. And that, <laughs> that was a real compliment to me. Yes. Because Steve Paikin is on TV Ontario, and he's a well-known interviewer. Absolutely. And he's superlative at what he does. He is. Yeah. Yes, I know him a little bit. Do you know Steve? Uh, yes. Oh, he's a fascinating guy, yes, isn't very he? Very interesting yeah, guy. He yes. really is. Um, a couple of other things. Uh, this is called office stuff that I want to put out there. Uh, you know what? My son, he's 13 years old. He just had his bar mitzvah. You've made a few bar mitzvahs in your life. I have. Yes, you have. Uh, he decided that he was going to support two students in Zimbabwe. Huh. Very, no and very you, noble of him. Yeah, I thought it was noble too. Yes. And you know, Sharon, it, it was $50 for the entire year. Can <laughs> Not you imagine? much of anything. Can, yeah. you, can you imagine that? Yes. Like, do you ever, you ever put those concepts in perspective? You're living in rural Zimbabwe. You don't have shoes or you share shoes shoes with somebody else. You definitely don't have a computer. And for you to go to school, it costs $50. And there's a good chance your family can't afford it. Yes. That's I know. Crazy. It's mind-boggling. Isn't it? For us, our lives are so completely different. I know. I, I think I tried to get at that a little bit. I mean, it, it's not the African versus Canadian reality or difference, but a little bit in the novel. Um, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. But I do try to get to that in terms of the difference between Jewish life in Europe during the war versus our protected, insulated life here and, and right. the gap between those two realities. And how can anyone really understand the differences? Can we? And I think that's part of why I chose to do two different narratives, someone who lives in Canada versus someone who lives in Europe during the 40s. But you had a third narrative, which was in Israel. Yes, yes. Right? And yes. Uh, parents do treat their children differently in Israel than they do here. Yes. Children are freer there. Definitely. Yeah. I remember once I was going to Banyas. Have you ever been at Banyas? Yes, yes. And there's Years a, ago. Yeah, there's a huge cliff. that I think you have to climb down a ladder, which I couldn't do nowadays because of my knees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I remember uh, watching these kids fly down this ladder and I was thinking to myself, my God, that's really scary. How do yeah. parents let their kids do that? And Israeli parents are happy to see their kids do it. They're, They're not as overprotective. Not at all. Not yeah. at all. But then I saw a plaque, Sharon. Yes. And the plaque was in memory of a child who fell. Oh, really? And, and I'm oh. thinking, okay, so maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Yes. Uh, maybe yes. they're just a little bit too free with their yes. children, right? Yes. But that being said, okay, so I tell you about the Zimbabwean children. 
We supported two. We're going to keep supporting them. And I've asked my friend, Dr. Paul Thistle, who's from Scarborough, Ontario, mm -hmm. and he's been living in Zimbabwe for many years. He married a woman from Zimbabwe, uh, three beautiful boys. If he could uh, send us uh, uh, names of three to five more kids. Yes. And I would love to get some of my listeners to support them. Oh, very Because, Sharon, you think idea. about it, 50 bucks. Yeah. Like, if you go to shopping, where do you shop for your food? Sobeys. You go to Sobeys? Yes. Tomatoes, lettuce, right? If you get some yes. pickles, mayonnaise, ketchup, whatever. Everything, yeah. It's 50 bucks. 50 bucks in five minutes. In five minutes, yeah. right? So um, I want people to be aware of it and uh, that, and I want them to keep their minds open to the fact that we have the ability to do some really special stuff in this world of ours because we are so blessed. Right. We're yes. so incredibly blessed. I but agree. Aren't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the last thing before we go back uh, to discuss your novel, which I want to do, is uh, the previous episode was with Robert Powell. Robert Powell is an ADHD coach. Oh, okay. Robert Powell is an ADHD coach. See what I just, just did there? <laughs> you repeated it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, he is giving away a free course. Uh -huh. If you listen to the show, uh, up until the end of September. So take a look at Robert Powell, P-A-L, robertpowell.com. Okay. And online, it'll direct you towards um, this free course. And I'll ask you for a number to input in the coupon. I think it's 902. I was going to say 90210, but that's that show that was on TV. Oh, Beverly Hills. <laughs> yeah. So look at hatradio.ca right. and you'll okay. find you'll find his page. Um, what does it mean to be a coach, a ADHD coach? Well, he, he's developed all these systems, actually, and all these procedures. For people to help uh, others who have it or to help he coaches oneself? Yeah, he coaches people who have ADHD. I see. And he says that people who have ADHD, there's a lot of challenges that go into life having a being adhd he said the, the 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 level of mental health is much greater the, the problems with mental health is much greater hmm. um that uh, people very often he says if you take a look at the jails i think he said 50 percent of people in jail are adhd really yeah it causes very huge huge percentage. problems yes so he what he will do is he'll sit down with people he'll determine where they're at who they are how they think how they deal with things what their behavior is and he'll sort that out with him and 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 work to push them forward to encourage them in life so quite quite the man very interesting fellow. yes interesting so you decided at some point in time after picking up an agno novel in yes. a bookstore it was actually a collection of, of short stories 21 stories i think yes, yes. and it apparently it was an old book that you found it was a, in a used bookstore yeah. that was in toronto south of bloor I forget what it was called. I just remember the name of the owner was Harry. The owner was Harry. <laughs> <laughs> the owner was Harry, and a friend of mine worked there. And I used to go and, you know, go through the shelves looking for something to read, and I came upon this book by Agnon. I came upon two books um, that really influenced me. It was the book of 21 Stories by Agnon, and also uh, I and Thou by, by Martin Buber. Buber. Yeah. Both of those books really... They just opened up new horizons for me. I never really read any works of Jewish philosophy, and I had never even thought about reading Jewish literature. I was reading the Russians, the French. You know, I was interested in Flo Flaubert. I mean, you mentioned Dostoevsky before. Yeah. I was consumed by the brothers Karamazov. I was a teenager. I was very, very taken by world literature. And so when I saw... The work of Agnon, I just thought, 
Jews can write like that? Yeah, you, you were kind of disappointed that nobody had told you about him and yes. about Jewish literature. Yes, I, I really, uh, I felt that I, I had been, um, uh, you know, I guess I'd been sheltered from this wonderful secret that Jews have this wonderful heritage of literary output. I really didn't know about it. My, I think my parents would read Chaim Potok and I don't know. I guess I, I never took it that seriously. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't think they had the gravitas of someone like Dostoevsky or Flaubert. And, and so when I discovered Agnon, it really showed me a whole new world, especially a lot of the stories take place in Israel. And that also was eye-opening. Do you still have that book? I do. Where, I still have it. Where is it? On my bookshelf with all my other Agnon books. Do you have a lot of books? <laughs> Don't ask. Yeah. Our house is just overflowing with books. Yeah. You like should we plan. Often joke, we often joke that we need a bigger house because of our books. Yeah, so I'll tell you something. You should start planning as to where those books are going to go. My father was a bibliophile, and when he died, he left, left us 10,000 books. Oh, wow. Heavy, heavy Jewish books and, you know, academia. And uh, it, was, it took years and years and years to figure out what to do what with them. What to do them. with them. I know. I often say that. To my husband, who's a big book collector, what are we going to do with all these books one day? And he says, I don't want to think about it. And then he often says, well, you know, if that's my biggest sin, he said, you know, I'm not a drinker. I don't take drugs. I'm not a womanizer. So I collect books. He collects books. Yeah. And <laughs> I book- said, you're right. You're right. Sh- it's Sharon, also bad. <laughs> book collectors are interesting people, too. Yes. Like you never really want to go into a bookstore with a book collector, <laughs> right? Because you will see them for hours just standing over a book, standing, yes. probably not even yes. realize they're standing up and reading that book page by page by page. Yeah, right? you can't get them out of there. No, you can't. No. Do I you don't. see yourself as a bibliophile, as a collector um, of books? I went a through a period when I was collecting first editions. I actually, I, I it was sort of a hobby of mine. I started collecting first editions, especially poetry and children's books. I have a whole collection, and I, part of me thinks I should sell it or do something yeah. with it, donate it. I don't know, but I haven't. Well, why but, do you collect them, Sharon? For what purpose? I I don't know. I just I was. What do finding, you think it is? What do you think? I find. Some of these early books, especially some of the early children's books or poetry books, are very beautiful. Yes. Something about the beauty of those books really draws me to them. And also just to hold a first edition of, of a novel in my hand, really, I, it just is thrilling to think that that was the first book put yeah. out, let's say, by a writer, if it, especially if it's the first novel of a novelist, and it's also the first edition, and it has the book jacket, and, you know, it doesn't have markings on it. I, yeah. I was really into it for a while, you know, looking for that pristine copy. But after a while, I, I kind of got tired of that. But my husband still is a big book collector. Whenever we travel, he researches before we go where the used bookstores are. Oh, does he really? Always. He has a list. Yeah. I just want you to take it a little bit further. Sure. The, the idea of, is it like homie, holding on, a, you know when you go to Israel and you walk into a store and they have these ancient Roman coins yes. and you go, oh my God, these have been around for 2,000 years. Is it like that? Uh, not exactly, because it's not, they're not that ancient. But some of these, especially some of the early children's books, have incredibly beautiful drawings in them. Right, right. So it, those are the books that draw me to them. Are you attracted to beauty? Yes. I think you are. I am. I think you are. I always have been, yeah. Yeah. How does that play out in your life? (sighs) I like to 
make my home beautiful, my garden. Um, and I like to write beautiful sentences. I like to read beautiful books. I'm always looking for books to read that have something in them that I feel like captures something beautiful. It's hard to find. Would you read Russian literature? Not very beautiful. I just read War and Peace recently, actually. Did I had you? never read it. It was always one of those things that I wanted to read, and I never I never did. Is and it a I thousand pages? I finally page? did it, yes. A thousand pages? Yeah, it was more. It was something like 1,100. It depends what translation. I, I started with one, and then I shifted to another because I didn't like the translation. Um, I just felt like the, the English was a little bit garbled, so I, um, I ended up choosing one that was a little bit more old-fashioned. I liked it better. But um, I don't tend to read the Russians that much anymore. Because? Was, uh, I got tired about reading. I got tired reading about interminable suffering. Yeah, yeah. It was fine when I was 19. Yeah, it's so black. It it's was so, so gray. dark, yeah. The yeah. Siberian camps. Oh, it was so dark. Oh. I, I like books that at least have a shred of light and um, that sliver of light is always something that I'm searching for and uh, hard to find in the Russians you know when I was reading your stuff I have to tell you something you and I are, are uh, very similar in some ways in what way well I'm like that too I need to find a shred of light I'm not a, certainly not a scholar and I'm not well read when it comes to Holocaust literature are you uh Fairly well read, yeah. In the fairly. last few years, have you read a Holocaust book? Uh, you mean a memoir or anything? anything? Yeah, anything. oh yeah, I've read a lot of memoirs. Okay. Um, I've tried a lot of novels. A lot of them don't appeal to me. I tend not to like the ones that are extremely grisly, that, that speak in detail about the horrors of the camps. Can you hear the Mengele stories at this point in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, I can read it. I can't. I can read it. Uh, but I can't because of the imagery in my head. The imagery, yeah. I mean, it's horrible about all the experimentation and the... And I know women who went through that. Yeah. My dear friend Marty's aunt went through that. She really? never She never had children. Because of the experiments. Yeah, yeah. So I can't, I can't read that stuff. And I never could. Like, I've never seen Schindler's List. Really? Yeah, I've never seen it. But why are we similar? Um... You said you want your stories to unfold as they write. That you said that's how that's how I uh, and I said that that's how I write as well. I found it quite fascinating. You were asked um, what was it about your novels that was really compelling as you were writing them. You said they were all sort of they were. You said it was a surprise to you. Yes, yes, that's really what makes it fun. Yeah. That you don't always know what's going to emerge on the page. You're writing. You think you know where you're going. And all of a sudden, you write something that you didn't expect you were going to write. And then you say, oh, that's good. Right, right. I didn't think I was going there, but that, that, that's good. That's where I do want to go. And you didn't even know it a second earlier. You didn't even know it. And all of a sudden, this character might appear. Yes. Whom you had not thought about the night before. Right. Right. Or an aspect of a character. Yeah, that happened to me today, in fact. I was writing a little, because I'm working on a second novel. And a certain aspect of the character that I'm writing about just emerged. And I was so taken aback. Pleasantly, though. Sharon, what do you think that is? Do you think that's uh, like having a baby? 
<laughs> Maybe just a little short. Thereof, but it's not exactly. Having aren't you three... giving creative birth? Yeah, it, yeah. It, there is something to it, but uh, it's much faster. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't have to go into labor. You know, the labor is is a lot different. But um, it, it's almost like a, a little bit of a revelation. You feel like an idea pops in your head, or a, a an image. And you don't know where it comes from. Yeah. And it seems almost magical. You think, where did I get this? Right. Where did I get this image? Where did I get this word? It's, I guess it's something to do with the creative imagination, but it's, it's fun when that happens because it's unexpected. Right. right. Although, you know, I have had it happen when I look at those images a day later and I say, oh, I don't even like it. Well, you, you, <laughs> it happens sometimes. Yeah, that's the challenge of writing. Something yeah. which can appear to be magical in one moment um, is kind of flat the next. Yeah. And then you have to think to yourself, well, what is it, magical or is it flat? And that becomes a challenge. To judge, yeah. But when I, when I was reading your short story, The Sign, which we're going to read on the show together. Oh, that'd be great. Um, really, I thought it was fascinating. Thank you. Really, it was a wonderful story. Thanks. You, you made me want to read more of your stuff. Thank you. One of the reasons I liked it, and again, this is where you and I are similar, there's a bunch of little slices of life in there, little mm-hmm. moments. You have the, uh, the 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 main character looking inside the window of a fish store. Yes. And you describe the fish, and at some point you say, and ultimately, you know, why did she look then? Well, you know, there's, the, did you say there's perfection in death or there's no perfection in death? Uh, well, we'll have to read it. Yeah, we'll read it together. She, she thinks they're perfect. Until she looks again. They all look the same. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. But like, how did you come up with that? Do you stop and look in fish store windows? Well, I did base it on a real fish store. I used to live in Boston yeah. when I was at Brandeis. I lived in uh, an area called Brookline, which is one of the main Jewish areas in Boston. And there was a very well-known fish store. And alas, it's no longer there anymore. It just closed a few years ago. But uh, it was called Wolf's. Wolf's fish store. Fish store, and everything was in the window. The fish were in the window. You could see the guys chopping fish through the window, and it was such a wonderful place. I loved going into Wolf's, and I used to look in the window. So I didn't call it Wolf's. I think I called it Waltz um, because I just wanted to change the name in case Wolf is still around and doesn't want me writing about his store. He called me before the interview. (laughs) He's looking for you. What did you like about the fish store? There was something so um, unpretentious about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just fish being hacked <laughs> and displayed in a window for everyone to look at. And 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 the people who worked there always seemed to be enjoying their job. Yeah, yeah, they were happy. They were happy. And there was such a kind of st- strange irony about that, that you're killing fish, which is pretty grisly. Yes, it is. <clears throat> But yet, at the same time, um, they were prettifying them and and bringing them to people to appreciate. So there was something, there was a strange contrast in that image. Are you a cottagey people, person? Yeah. Uh, we don't have a cottage, but we used to go up to my, my in-law's cottage all the time. You know, where, where was it? In Gravenhurst. Oh, it's a beautiful area. So would you ever have to gut a fish? Uh, I avoided it. Would you do it? No, I don't think I, I don't think I can do it. I could do it. My do, kids, do you know how to do it? No, I, 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 I'm squeamish when it comes to that. No. But you can read Mengele stories. 
<laughs> well, I can't do either. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I can distance myself when yeah. you're reading as opposed to actually doing. Yeah. Doing and reading is a different experience. Not, not to verge off. You remember when you were, when your kids were little? Now yes. that now they're older, right? Yes. And, and, and you would have to clean up their stuff. Yes. They would pee or they would poo. They vomit on All you. All the time. Right? But you yeah. did it. You, you did it. You just do it. Yeah. <laughs> you just do you it. You don't right? think about it. You, you can't do say it no. because you have to do yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. Did your husband change diapers? He did. Oh, yes. he did. Good yes. for him. Yes. Yeah, good for him. He did change diapers. Right. And you just get used to it. It's a funny right. thing. It's like being in harness. Yeah. You have to do it, so you do it. You do it, exactly. So um, so you, you, you ultimately, you become a professor. Yes. W- which I'm fascinated by, too. Like, you got your PhD. Yes. So you're a doctor. I am. Very few people call me that, but... In an interview, you were called a doctor. I do, know, people do, and I always say, oh, just call me Sharon. Is okay. there a feeling of being a doctor? Uh, no. I, you know... I'll tell you a funny story. We once went to a wedding. My husband and I both have PhDs, and um, he was he was asked to do the mozi at the wedding, and he, to make he a was, blessing over the bread. Yeah, to make a blessing over the bread, and they called him up as Doctor Green, and so he went up. And after that, everyone assumed he was a medical doctor, and they <laughs> they were coming up to him, "Hey, doc!" And he got such attention from My it. My is acting. Yeah, up, yeah, exactly. And he thought, so this is what it feels like to be a medical doctor. Yeah. He got such respect. Yeah. You know, when you're a professor, you don't, you really do not feel uh, that same attention from having the doctor in front of your name. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel a little embarrassed by it almost. I don't oh, feel. Oh, why? I don't know. Just, I guess because I associate it with being a medical doctor. Even when people call me, some people, I still see some former students of mine from U of T who still insist on calling me Professor Green. And I always say, no, you know, you can but you know what they're Sharon. doing? You know, they're doing it for themselves, not for you necessarily. And I'll give you an example. I okay. think I'm speculating, but yes. uh, my son is in hockey, yes. and he's now in select hockey, which is a step up. And all of the coaches uh, who coached him, who I meet, I'll say to them, "Hey, coach, how you doing?" And and you know, Sharon, I do that for me. There's a there's a component of it where like I'm a little subservient to them. They're my son's coach. Yes. And yeah. I have to pay them respect, therefore, yes. and I sort of get a buzz off that. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I, so when yeah, they say, hey, professor, right. they're good. And they walked away. And you know what they say to their friends? Yeah, that's my professor. Yeah. Right? Like it so makes them feel important. It's I a guess. status yes, thing, right? I guess right? so. But yeah. how was it for you standing in front of a classroom and teaching as a professor, knowing that in some ways you're venerated, knowing in some ways that people are hanging on to every word that you say? Were, loved, you, were you a good professor? I loved it. Yeah. No, I actually really liked teaching. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, I didn't tend to give formal lectures. I tended to run seminars. Yeah. It was just the way I liked to teach. And also Hebrew, and I was teaching Yiddish literature too, Hebrew literature, Yiddish literature, they don't attract huge crowds. I'd have often 10 to 20 students in the class. So it was perfect for sitting around a long table. And in fact, uh, I was famous for serving tea. Were you? In my Yiddish literature class. (laughs) Yeah. We, every week, because it was a three hour class, after an after, uh, an hour and a half, I would boil water and serve a bissel tea. <laughs> now, now, would you put sugar in the tea, or would you put the, the ice love, cube in your in your between? You mean your the teeth? little sugar cubes? The I didn't go cube. so far, but we always joked about that. Yeah. And sometimes I'd bring cookies. People brought food. Yeah, it was it was really what nice. What kind of cookies did you bring? Oh, just anything that was yeah. around the house. Nothings? Did you bring nothing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about <laughs> no, that. I, could, 
I've had those since I was yeah, a kid. Yeah. No, like I, when people say, "Wow, you're 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 interesting. I really enjoy your class." Yeah, I got a lot of good responses. Yeah, I did. I did get good responses. I also had a lot of people audit my class from the community. Um, people who were uh, retired. Remember Phil Givens, the former mayor yeah, of Toronto? Sure. He audited my class. How was that for you? Were you nervous? Uh, a little at first, but he was a character. I loved having characters. Yeah. And especially um, some of these older characters just added so much to the class. The right. students loved it. <laughs> Can was, you give me an example? Well, there was a... Um, an interesting guy named Julie Sokolov. Did you know Julius? Julius Sokolov. I know the name. I know the name. Wonderful, wonderful man. He's deceased now, but he came and audited my class. And sometimes um, a few of the old timers got into arguments with did, each other. Did they? And at one point, I thought it would come to blows. Really? Yeah, really. Honestly, they became very heated. Like arguments about what? Oh, about the meaning of a word or, or how to interpret a Yiddish story or about something to do with uh, Jewish history, how to interpret a certain event. And, you know, sometimes it became very heated. Were they yelling at each other in Yiddish? No, no, no. It was always in English. Yeah. It was always in English. These were, these were courses in English translation. And I often uh, offered students the option of having um, an extra hour at the end of the class where we could look at the texts in the original. But I did not presume any Yiddish knowledge because if I did, I'd have two students. Right, right. So I had to offer them an English translation. Did you have any superstars, students? I did. I had a few really good students who went on to do doctorates and are now professors. What what in your mind, what in your eyes made them superstars? Oh, they just wrote brilliant essays. Did they? Yeah. Were you amazed when you'd be reading them? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The odd time I would say, I couldn't do this. (laughs) Right. You're right. Right. That's exactly right. I used to have employees and I, I would see what they would do and how they would act in the field. I used to run a nonprofit and I would think to myself, yeah, man, I, I, I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's humbling. It's humbling. Yeah. It really is. It is humbling. And you think, here, I'm the professor, and this person's really brilliant. I don't know if I could have done as good a job. Right. And I tried to bring that into the class to some extent. You know, sometimes students will ask you a question, and you don't know how to answer it because they assume you know everything. You know, they'll ask you something so (laughs) detailed. You know, what year did, you know, an ex-pogrom break out in uh, some obscure town? I don't know. And I'd say, you know what? I really don't know the answer to that. And so they they like that. Well, it's like a parent, no? Yeah. Like, you did, can't you tell know your, everything. did you tell your did you tell your kids you knew the answer to everything? I no, didn't. I didn't. No. No, I didn't either. No. But I think our parents did. Yeah, or they just sort of um, mumbled. Mumbled. They say, oh, you know, leave you know, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'm busy now. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about the cosmos. Yes. <laughs> right, right. So you're attracted to Agnon, right? Yes. Yes. You're actually blown away by Agdon. That's I, the truth. I, I was. I really have not been reading him recently. I, you know, I'm reading all kinds of other things. So, but I went through a long period when I was reading everything I could get my hands on, and then I wrote wrote my doctoral thesis on him, and then published it in a revised version as a book. Did you like his juxtaposition of the religious and the secular? Yes, that was one of the things that really appealed to me. Especially because I felt that um, there was such a um, insight into human nature yeah. in that juxtaposition that it didn't matter whether he was talking about the old world or the new world, but that he understood the way people ticked, what made people tick, and 
I just found that fascinating. And also, he was very ironic about religion. A lot of people take him very seriously. I always thought he was a supreme ironist. Right. Seems to me he would have said that about himself. I think so. That's yeah. my take on it, at least. And that's the way I approached his work. Does one of his uh, characters come to mind that you just so enjoyed his development of he or she? Well, I, you know, the book that I wrote was mostly uh, focused on his novel, Sipur Pashut, which is uh, translated as a simple story. Mm -hmm. And the hero of the story is someone named Herschel Horowitz, or Horowitz in Hebrew. And I found the character of Herschel just fascinating. Why is that? Because he was so um, manipulated by all the forces around him. And as a reader, you could see it, but he didn't understand it. And when he finally starts to realize it and tries to unburden himself from all these forces, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's trapped. I just found that so interesting, the way Agnon was able to write that in such a delicate way. I think Shakespeare did that a lot, where the reader was aware of what was going on, but the characters themselves didn't get it. Exactly. It's a fascinating approach to Yes, to and not it. everyone can pull that off, but Agnon is really good at doing that. He is. And I felt that in that novel, he showed himself to be such a great um, weaver of plot, whereas in some of his other novels, I found that he goes off on a lot of tangents. And it's more, they're more midrashic in style, that where they you know, tell a little story here and a little story there, and he goes off the main course. And so you know, you're often wondering, you know, what's he getting at? Why is he telling us that little story? Not in, in a simple story. In a simple story, it follows one thread. And I, I tend to like linear stories in that way. Yet, yet your novel... That I wrote? The novel that you wrote has two different it does. narratives that ultimately come together. Yes, but they're both linear. Okay. They're both linear, yeah. and you follow them. They both follow a straight line. They don't go. They don't weave all. They over don't the place. weave all over the place. No, I, I find that very distracting, and I don't really like reading those kinds of stories. Agnon does follow the linear um, technique in his short stories for yeah. the most part, and I do really like most of his short stories. I used to always teach one of a few in my Hebrew literature classes. Um, one called Agunot, which was his first novel that made him famous, and he took his name from that right, story. Right, took his name from it, yes. Yeah. And then uh, another one called Tehillah, which is a beautiful story as well. Yeah, my friend uh, Motzel, who's also my Chavrusa, he's yes. the one that I learn with every Monday night, we're learning a tractate called Sota. Oh, yes. Do you know yes. what a Sota is? Yes, I do. A Sota is a woman who is accused of having relations with another man. Yes, an adulteress. Uh, an adulteress, good yes. word. And she therefore has to drink this concoction, which if indeed she was an adulteress, she'll blow up. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the Talmud says the fellow whom she slept with will blow up as well. <laughs> but the good news is, is that consensus is it never really happened. Right, right. It's a fascinating Talmud. Uh, but again, I diverge. But Motel, uh, yeah, was telling me last night about Tehillah. Yes. And oh, he was talking about that particular story. Yeah, he was telling. Yeah. And he said it was uh, probably one of his best. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story, uh, which I think is also heavily laced with irony, mm -hmm. but uh, it takes many readings, I think, to really understand that story. It's, it's about an old woman, a very wise old yes, woman, who right? who seems wise. 
Who seems wise, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's presented as wise, but yeah. you have to kind of step back and wonder whether Agnon is playing with you mm-hmm. and, and whether she really is as wise as you think she is. is. Is this a man who indeed has a Talmudic way of thinking? Have you ever studied the Talmud yourself? Oh, not in any depth. You know, in my intro to Judaism classes, we do little bits and pieces, but really not. Yeah. Not in any so the depth. Talmud basically is begins with a premise, right? That your gore, your your ox gored my ox. Yes. Okay. And Shame. there's all kinds of reasoning that comes out of that. Whether you know. Then these rabbis come generationally, not not just from today, not just from yesterday, yes. but for over hundreds of years, and they debate. Uh, what does it mean? It's your ox. What does it mean? It's my ox. Um, oh, it gored it. How did it gore it? And was there a fence up between them? And all these dimensions and dynamics come into play. Yes, and who is responsible? So knowing knowing that Agnon both had a very strong secular education, which he got from his mother, yes. right? He was he was it was up on German literature, right? Yes, uh, he was basically an autodidact. You would call him a self-educated. Self-educated, yeah. Uh, his parents kept him home, I think, from school. Yeah, but he he claims he read every single book in the Buchach Library. Well, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but it was a, you know. I imagine it was a small library, but he claims yeah. he ran out of books because he read them all. Okay, okay. Yeah, I know the booch, it's not really known for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't that large, but maybe he did. I don't know. But anyways, the, the point is, well, he's brilliant. I mean, that's yes. for sure. But he also had a very strong Jewish education, oh, which, yeah. which he got through his father. Yes, and he, again, he was a master of so many obscure texts. He read all kinds of unusual mystical literature. I mean, he refers to them in a lot of his works. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you mm-hmm. look at the footnotes that, you know, those who have edited his works have put together, you can see how he draws on so many sources. So he did have an extremely uh, broad and deep knowledge of Jewish sources. What what sets him apart from other writers? Well, he took Judaism very seriously as a religion, but I don't think he was really a religious writer. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any agenda, religious agenda. He respected religion and later in life returned to religious observance to some extent, but he always judged it from a certain distance so that he could he could write about it without being um, hemmed in by it and I found that just I find that juxtaposition between his fascination and his respect for it and taking it seriously um, fascinating because he understands what Judaism has been and is without being necessarily um, a cheerleader for it. Right, and, and he said that he was most influenced by the stories in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something to that. But yet he took the modern world very seriously, yeah. and he became a Zionist. and um, he Lived was, in Israel, died lived in, in Israel. Israel died, yes, exactly, and believed in, in, in Jewish independence and freeing themselves that the Jews need to free themselves from some of the um, the conditions that allowed them to stay subjugated. So I think that awareness, it's very hard to find a modern Jewish writer who takes Judaism seriously. Now, talking about modern Jewish writers, you tapped into somebody else later on by the name of Chava Pinchas Cohen. Yes. It's really interesting how you met her. Talk, talk about that. Okay. Well, I you know, had been teaching 
at U of T um, in modern Hebrew literature. And one of the courses that I taught was called Faith and Doubt in Modern Hebrew Poetry. Yes. And I was often searching for poems that had to do with religious faith or doubt about religious faith. And one of the poets that I felt addressed this most profoundly was Chava Pinchas Cohen. She wasn't translated very much, but I found a few of her poems that were translated into English, and I really liked them. And I always included them in my course. Yes. And then one day I was um, in Israel, I was at a conference, and uh, my husband and I met uh, a scholar named Menachem Lorberbaum, who uh, lives in Jerusalem, even though he teaches at Tel Aviv University, he invited us over for tea on Shabbat. And we said, sure, and we went over, and there was a woman there, and I just assumed it was a friend, because I knew he was divorced. And I said, uh, oh, uh, introduce me to your friend. And she came up and said, oh, my name is Chava. And I yeah. said, oh, I'm Sharon. And I said, oh, what? Chava, uh, Chava what? I, I, I had no clue that had it no was idea. the poet. And she said, Chava Pinchas Cohen. I, I screamed, Chava Pinchas Cohen. I can't believe it. I love your poetry. I teach it in Canada. And then she started screaming yeah. and jumping up and down. You teach my poems in Canada? I yeah. can't believe it. And we were hugging each other and jumping up and down. Yeah, what are the chances, right? What are the chances? Like, right. we just couldn't believe it. And then after that, I told her that I had actually translated a few of her poems because in order to teach them, I realized that some of the translations I was using were not really accurate. So I would retranslate them. And so when she heard that I translated some of her work, she was so excited. She said, would you be interested in translating more? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't." You said, maybe. I said, maybe. I, I'm not really a translator. I just do it for my teaching. She said, oh, well, let's meet tomorrow. I will give you <laughs> all of my poems. Maybe you'll be interested. And I ended up doing it. You said one of the biggest challenges were the litur liturgical yes. components. What, what did you mean by that? I mean the, the phrases that she took that she often uses phrases from the prayer book yeah. or from um, either the, the daily prayer book, the Sidur, or from the Machzor, the High Holiday prayer book. She often weaves interesting or very select phrases into her poems. And I always had to think, should I translate these literally or should I leave them as is? Because sometimes um, it's better to leave them because people will, will recognize them. If they're very short... Sometimes it's better to leave them, and I had to make those sorts of decisions again and again. Sharon, I don't think people understand the enormous challenge of translating something from another language. Yes, it's a it is a challenge. There's very, no doubt. Very often, when Motel and I are together on Monday nights and we're learning, um, he's a bastion, really, of knowledge. He's a very, very well-read individual, extremely bright. And he'll come up with stuff which I've never heard of having to do with liter literature or movies and film. Um, it's a real honor to learn with him. Yes. But then we'll talk about the translation of a particular novel or a story. And he'll say, well, you know, the translation doesn't really work that well. Yes. And I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, often you can tell because if it's, if it's really awkward English, you know that if this is considered a great work, yeah. there's something wrong with the translation. Yeah. You know, you have to be so careful when you're translating to make it work in English. You have to know English really well. I could not translate into Hebrew, for example. I've been asked to do it. I said, no, I can't do it. I, yeah. I, I know Hebrew. I can speak Hebrew, but I'm not a native Hebrew speaker. And if I tried to translate something into Hebrew, I would just make a mess of it. You would botch it. Yeah. Whereas I can translate from Hebrew into English because I know English so well. It's my native tongue. 
So Chava Pinchas Cohen, uh, you actually uh, compiled her poetry and uh, you translated it. Yes, I selected about a hundred of her poems from her five volumes. Now she has about seven out. But yeah, I selected ones that I thought worked well. So she is an Israeli writer and a poet. She was born to a Jewish family of Bulgarian immigrants in 1955. Chava Pinchas Cohen, um, her family fled from the European continent in the aftermath of World War II. They found a new life in Israel. And Pinchas Cohen was the first in her family to be born in the state of Israel. According to Yaniv Hugby, in a comment translated from Hebrew to English, her experiences, the state of Israel, Judaism, eroticism, and the Tanakh are remarkably woven together in the tapestry of her work. Pinchas Cohen and her four daughters live in Jerusalem. Yes. What, would you say that's an accurate, accurate uh, description? Yeah, except they're, some of her daughters are married now, and I don't, they don't live in Jerusalem anymore. I okay. guess it's a little out of date, but yes. yes she so, still lives in Jerusalem. So I have a couple of uh, poems here that I've printed up. One is called The Veil and the Crown. Veil and Crown. Do you know that one? Uh, no, that one I never, I, I don't think I ever translated that How one. How about That Man? Um, also not? Maybe not. I don't the think. Golem? Golem? No. Okay. Would you read The Veil and the Crown? If I like the translation. <laughs> okay. If you don't, you don't have to. Okay. Veil and Crown. In the corridor, I saw a woman put white silk on her man's head covering his face and throat. She folded back the white and set a black rope crown around it to expose his face. The bitter taste of the ointment still on his wrinkles, his mustache unkempt. I thought the groom veiled the bride and bared her face to his kiss. She gave him his cane and he placed it between his feet, steadying it with his hand. She gave him a string of amber prayer beads and he wound it around his palm and stood and strode like a king behind his slave. Was she somewhat of a feminist writer? Um, or is she? Only very slightly. Not in any strong ideological way. She makes her w women very strong in her poetry. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes they're very weak. Are they? Yeah, it, it varies. Okay, all right. So once, once, once again, what, what would you say was at the core of her poetry that really drew you to it? The way she grapples with the inner religious life of the Jew. Yeah. And how it's not simple. It's complex. And she lives a complex religious life. She's somewhat observant, but not completely observant. She's someone who respects Judaism but has her doubts about it, and, and that emerges in her poetry. And it's that complexity, that mixture, that I find very, very interesting. I mean, Yehuda Amichai does it similarly, except he, he was further removed from living a Jewish life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was raised religiously and moved very far away from it, but still retained some respect for it, and that emerges in his poetry. Chava is much closer to religion, in her own life, and that comes out. So are there complexities, or the way they see Judaism in the world as being complex, are they your complexities as well? I guess I identify with them to some extent. You, you must. I do. You must, because you yes. chose two very strong people, yes. both of whom sort of come from the same place. Yes, yeah. they are similar. Yeah. Right, right. And then you wrote this novel, 
right? Yes. Similarly, you yes. know. Which really isn't on a religious theme, although religion enters into it a little bit. In Israel? In Israel, yeah. a little bit. Okay. You'll see when you read it. Let's get to that. I'm, I'm excited about reading oh, it. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. So you wrote a story, and it's called A Sign. Yes. By Sharon Hart Green, yes. who is my guest today. And I'd like to read it together. Okay. If you're amenable to doing that. Sure. I want to, I want you to know that I really enjoyed reading it. I'm glad to hear I that. I really did. I, I like the, um, the nuances that you develop, as I said before, the slices of life, because I do that too. And I think that comes from a person who's walking along the street and will see an old lady looking in her bag and fishing out a banana, stopping and peeling it, and being intrigued by that very moment. Yes. Right? Yes. That's how I am. And it yes. seems to me that's you'll how you... You'll notice that. Right. Yes. Right. Not everybody does. Yes. Like, you'll go, oh, did you see that woman? It's fascinating how she did that. Yes. And I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Yes, yes. But this is a particular type of writing. So when I read it, I, 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 I love the story itself, but I uh, so enjoyed those little nuances, those little slices of life. So I'm going to hand you a copy. Okay, thank you. And um, if you don't mind, I'll start it off. Okay. We'll, let's say we'll read two paragraphs each and then we'll move on. Okay. A sign by Sharon Hart Green, who is my guest today. T time will be mine if I hold on to it long enough. Appreciate. Appreciate what you have, but will there ever be a sign that my time has arrived? These were the kinds of thoughts that swirled around the mind of Sarah Levita, as she pressed her forehead against the full-length window of the fish store known as Waltz. Whenever she walked down Harvard Street, she always stopped to gaze at the fish in the window. These fish look content, she mused, and why not? They were scraped and scrubbed and luxuriously displayed. Even the ice crystals upon which they lay their briny fins sparkled like tiny jewels. But it wasn't just the fish that drew Sarah to the shop window. Waltz seemed more real to her than any other place in Brookline, or all of Boston for that matter. Part of it was that she loved to watch the antics of the boisterous men who worked there. They didn't seem to mind that their fingers were mired in fish flesh and their aprons were spattered with fish blood, and this for ten hours every day of the week. They were always in good humor, even their shouting and cursing a particularly spicy brew, were done in jest. They even burst into song once in a while. And if you were lucky enough to catch it, you would hear bits of opera mixed with raunchy plays on fish that would make your earlobes burn. Sarah would often enter the store and buy two pieces of fish, one for herself and the other to conceal the fact that she lived alone. Whenever she ordered, she would get the same response or a variation on it. Perfect choice. A pinch of salt and a squeeze of lemon. And you're in heaven. Her thoughts immediately flitted to Fred and Ginger singing rapturously in her favorite old movie, Heaven, I'm in Heaven. When we're out together, dancing cheek to cheek. Although her tiny apartment in the basement of a Brookline brownstone was a far cry from heaven, it suited the needs of a 27-year-old single woman with few friends and limited resources. Every day, Sarah would take the green line to her job at a publishing company that specialized in books for the blind. She was in charge of mass assessing manuscripts that were geared to children under the age of 12. She liked her job as it made her feel as though she was doing something good for humanity. 
Because her office was close to Boston University, she would take a bagged lunch along with her to work and walk over to one of the college cafeterias where she would eat her sandwich and buy a cup of fair trade coffee. In warm weather, she would carry her coffee outside and eat her lunch on a bench outside the Mugar Library. That is where she met Yoav. At first, she didn't notice the stocky young man who sat down beside her on the concrete bench. Even when he tried to strike up a conversation with her by commenting on the weather, she was so immersed in her own thoughts that she didn't register his words. After a few moments of silence, he hung his head between his knees, curled his neck sideways until he was staring at her her straight in the face, and boom, what's wrong? Am I so ugly that you won't even answer me? Shocked out of her daydreams, Sarah struggled to respond. She was not accustomed to being accused of anything, much less being a snob or a person who harbors prejudices. In fact, she took pride in the fact that she celebrated diversity in all its forms. She began to mumble, no, 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 you're not ugly at all. Why would you say such a thing? The young man lifted his left hand and brought it up close to, his, to her face. Even Sarah was shocked, shocked by its gross deformity. Two middle fingers were completely missing, and those that remained were so shriveled that they barely resembled fingers anymore. They were more like bony black lizards. I don't know what to say, she mumbled, trying not to stare at his hand any more than she had to. There is nothing to say, but you can ask. Everyone who sees it wants to know. Was I born like this? Did I put my hand through a shredder? Sometimes I'm tempted to make up something really juicy just to entertain people. It could be a great conversation piece. Now I don't know if you'll tell me the truth, even if I do ask, she countered. Wait a minute. I said I was tempted to make up stories. Not that I do make them up. Sarah thought about that for a moment and then quietly taunted. Yes, but sometimes secret desires are what people are all about. They are. What are you, a psychologist? This made Sarah laugh out loud. Me? A psychologist? I can't even figure out my own life, not to mention anyone else's. Hmm. So let me see if I can figure you out, the young man pulled back his chin squinted his eyes and studied her from from head to toe. Let me see. You are approximately 25 years old. No, probably a bit more, but your long straight hair makes you look a little bit younger than you are. Single, Jewish. You have a father who spoiled you as a child, but then ignored you when you got older. A mother who's a do-gooder, always tops in volunteer organizations, PTA, Brandeis Book Club, the Democratic Party. How am I doing so far? Not bad, but you got one thing wrong. My father died when I was 10. No, I was right. If he went ahead and died, that is really ignoring you. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you can say that. Sarah suddenly grew pensive. So what about you? How did you lose the fingers? The young man started to make a joke, but stopped himself and looked away as he spoke. Listen, I was on a patrol at the Lebanese border when Hezbollah attacked. I got caught in the crossfire. Nothing romantic, just a typical casualty of war. And how long ago was that? It was nine years ago. I was 20 at the time. Is that why you left Israel? To get away from the war? No, are you kidding? I would go back in a second. I was sent here on a fellowship to study at MIT. As soon as my studies are finished, I'm going back. 
Sarah was confused. How could he return to a country that inflicted such pain on him? But she decided it was better not to ask, so she switched to a safer subject. So, what brings you to BU? I thought MIT students never venture out of their labs. The girls are more interesting over here. Take you, for instance. I would never meet a girl like you at, M at MIT. And how do you define a girl like me? Well, for one thing, you're a girl who's not trying to be a man. You sit and daydream. I like that. Doesn't everyone daydream? Not the girls I meet. They're too busy trying to get ahead to have time for any sort of dreaming. And Israeli girls? What are they like? They're more like you. Sarah was stunned. Like me? I can't imagine having anything in common with girls over there, she thought. I'm not tough at all. If I had to deal with any kind of violence, I would run and hide. You'd be surprised. Surprised? If you had to be strong, you just do it. That's the secret to how we Israelis live. Underneath, we're as scared as anyone else. Sarah had never heard anyone put it that way before. She tended to think that Israelis were a different breed of Jew, that they had evolved into a kind of uber-Jew in one or two generations. The young man then touched her arm lightly. At that moment, Sarah noticed the curve of his soft chestnut eyes and how his lashes half-covered them when he smiled. Listen, I don't even know your name. I'm Yoav, Yoav uh, Muchnik. Sarah Levita. Ah, Levita, that's a distinguished name. Oh, how so? Well, in elementary school, every Israeli child learns about Eliyahu Levita. He lived in the Middle Ages and wrote some of the first Jewish love stories. His most famous work was the Bova Buch. In fact, that's where you get the expression Boba Misa. Most people think it means an old wives' tale, but it actually goes back to Levita's book. I can't believe that I never knew any of this. Are you sure you're not just making up your own Boba Misa? I told you before, I don't make up stories. You'll see that once you get to know me better. Know him better? Sarah thought she should be surprised by that remark, but somehow it didn't seem presumptuous at all. It seemed fitting and natural. Yet Sarah was still bothered by something and had to speak her mind. There's one thing I must tell you in case you have the wrong impression of me, and that is, I'm not a student at BU. In fact, I'm not a student at all. I work in the area and come here for lunch. I guess, well, it makes me feel young. Does that make sense to you? Sure, I feel it all the time. Here in America, the guys my age are already set up in their careers. But in Israel, we don't even start college until we finish our three years in the army. In my case, I was delayed even further because of my injury. I sometimes feel like an old man compared to the kids I'm studying with. Sarah nodded. It's funny. When I was in college, I couldn't wait to get out. And now that I'm out, I regret that I'm not still there. Well, I know all about regret. I tortured myself for years about what I could have done differently to prevent what happened to me in the war. I finally had to realize that there was nothing I could have done. It's how you react to your circumstances that's important. Now I just live the way I want. If I see something I like, well, I go for it. Oh, I wish I could be more that way, Sarah disclosed with a hint of wistfulness in her voice. Well, why not try? What is the one thing you would like to do most that you are afraid to do? Think. I don't know. Think. I really don't know. Well, okay, I do. You'll laugh, though. Try me. 
I want, I want to go ballroom dancing. That's it. Uh huh. So let's do it right now. I have to get back to my work. We'll go tonight. What time shall I pick you up? That evening after work, Sarah paced up and down Harvard Street before going back to her apartment. She was in a state of agitation. Why am I going out with this perfect stranger? Am I crazy? And as much as she hated to admit it, she wasn't sure that she could overcome her feelings of revulsion towards his deformed hand. It threw her off kilter and made her suspect that she wasn't the kind of caring person that she thought she was. Yet at the same time, she couldn't stop thinking about Yoav and his soft chestnut eyes. Most of all, she was so at ease with him, despite the fact that he was completely unlike her and she completely unlike him. Approaching Walt's fish store, Sarah stopped and looked at the fish in the window. Each of them looked exactly alike with their glassy eyes and vacant expression. She then peered into the store and saw two of the employees joking and gesturing to one another as they chopped the heads off some giant carp. One of the men was tall and broad with small tufts of gray atop a shiny skull. The other was considerably shorter with thick lips and protruding ears. The two of them were laughing so loud that their voices carried out onto the street. The fish in the window lay there completely mute. Now I see it, exclaimed Sarah to herself. Why is it that all these fish look alike? Because they're dead. It doesn't matter how nicely they're displayed. Perfection is only in death. But people, they have weaknesses, imperfections, flaws, and that's the way it must be. Yes, yes, she uttered. A flaw is a sign. It's a sign of life. Sarah walked briskly to her apartment she still found it hard to dispel the image of Yoav's lizard-like fingers from her mind. Nevertheless, she changed into a colorful dress and even more colorful dancing shoes. She had no idea what one wore to go ballroom dancing, but she didn't care. Yoav would be arriving at any moment, and she was ready to whirl and be whirled. That's really nice. Thank you. How did it feel to read it? Great. Yeah. Did it feel good? Yeah, it did. I haven't read it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read it aloud? No, I actually have not. Yeah. First right. time. Nicely done. Thank you. Yeah. You too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, wh- what's with the lizard hands, the lizard fingers? Where is that coming from? <sighs> I don't know. It was yeah. one of those images that came into my head, yeah. and I don't know where they came from. Yeah. Would you Would you have dated uh, a man who had uh, no digits, who was uh, deformed in some way? If I felt a deep connection with him, yes, I think I could. You would have. I think I would have, but I'd have to overcome it. She was, she was struggling. Yeah, yeah, I understand that because uh, we. I grew up with somebody who had uh, some physical uh, challenges that way, and uh, there were women who would not date him. Yes, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, but I'm always interested as a writer, like honestly, like where does this stuff come from? Right? I know you don't always. You don't really know. No. And what's interesting about how you defined his lizardry (laughs) (laughs) is that it wasn't just he was missing a finger or he was missing two or three fingers. Yes. But you define define the hands in a way where the imagery in my head anyways was like a really deformed and disgusting hand. Yes. Yeah. So you really went out of your way to let the reader know. It was particularly um, uh, grotesque. Yeah. 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 Do you like uh, the protagonist? Do you like Sarah? Um. 
Yeah, I do, because she's someone who learns something, and that's always something that I'm interested in, people who allow themselves to get over their own limitations in order to learn something. She was locked in her own world in a way, and not that happy, but yet because she took this risk and was able to listen to him, yeah. she and admit things about herself to him, that she became a different person in a way. By the end, she was different. Yeah, at the end, how did you see her? How was she different? She didn't, it wasn't like she was miraculously transformed into a person who didn't care about the deformity, but she was willing to put it aside in order to appreciate all of his other good characteristics. That the comfort level she felt with him was... It, it, it transcended any revulsion she felt. And it, what's really interesting, too, is the, the line where you said, I just don't know if I'm the person that I thought I was, if I'm the caring individual yes. that I perceive myself to be. And that really resonated with me because, you know, I worked in the humanitarian field for many years. Yes. And there were definitely times where I was less than humanitarian. And I had to I had to really question who I was and what I was all about if I wasn't responding in the way that was expected of me by others and expected of me by myself. Right. You know yes. those moments, right? Yeah, of course. You, you kind of disappoint yourself. Yes, yes. You have an image of yourself and how you think you see yourself and others perceive you. Right. And then sometimes you have these these other feelings and other thoughts that <laughs> are uh, contradictory. Yeah. And you think, oh, maybe I'm not the person I thought I was. And, and you're embarrassed and... and and you, it's hard to deal with. Yes, and you use very strong words, revulsion. Yes. It's not just that, well, I had a problem looking at his hand. She, it was revulsion. Yes. Right? Yes. That's a strong word. Yes. So you wrote a book called Come Back From Me. You stopped teaching at University of Toronto. You took a break. You had some time. And you decided that you were going to write a novel. And it's and I had started it a long time before that, but I, I needed the time to finish it. Yes. What really was, I found very compelling was you said that, look, I've been explaining other people's writing for so long. Yes. And it, it, it's almost like you, okay, I want to celebrate my own creativity already, right? Yes. And I totally get that. Yes. I totally get that. So the book was um, described as loss, trauma, memory, and above all, the ties of family are the elements that weave together this uh, panoramic story. It's it's about uh, a main character. His name is Arthur Mandelkorn. is is a young Hungarian Holocaust survivor, on a desperate quest uh, to find his beloved sister. Yes, right. He's very young. At the beginning of the story, he's only fourteen. He's only fourteen years yes. old, and his sister is twelve. What happened to her? She. They become separated during the war, and he searches for her throughout most of the novel. But I don't want to tell you what happens because so then it, I'll give it away. You know, don't tell me. But, I, you know, what comes to mind is the, the tragedy of war. And they say the first the first ones, you know, who lose are the kids, right? The children, I know. The children, right? Yes. And they are children. Uh, they're on their own. And they're separated. And and I'm not going to say what the circumstances are, but they're separated. And that, that in a way, is his quest. I mean, there are other parts to his quest, a quest for love, for, for, uh, for acceptance. There are all kinds of other things that go on in his life. But really, at the core, it's his quest to find her and the guilt 
that he lost her. That he lost her, yeah. Yes. How do you think you would have done in war? I often ask myself that. I think we all do. What would I have done? I tend to think I would just have been completely destroyed by it, Mm -hmm. that I would not have been strong at all. But, you know, you just don't know. You don't know until the circumstance hits you. Yeah. So I really, I, I cannot really predict. Yeah, we don't know what is inside of us until we're challenged and it comes out. Yes. I've asked a few people before, would you be a righteous Jew? As an example, righteous Gentiles are individuals who saved Jewish lives during the war at the risk of their own family yes. being murdered. I asked Jewish people, would you be a righteous Jew? Would you save a Gentile whom you don't know? And I think the honest response is, I have no idea. Yeah. Right? Took such courage. And, and, you know, they not only put themselves at risk, but their entire families at risk. And, you know, yes, uh, we like to think that more of them should have done it, but it took incredible courage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the novel uh, is more so, it intersects um, Arthur's tale uh, with that of, of Susie Cohen, a Toronto teenager whose seemingly tranquil life is shattered by her uncle's sudden death. Yes. I'm curious why you chose a teenager. Well, I tra- like how old were you when you wrote this? Oh, you know, in my middle age, <laughs> you know. So do you so, know teenage girls? Uh, do you understand I teenage girls? I was one. I was one. Was once. that enough? I felt it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I still feel like I'm in touch with my earlier self. You're a child inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. So uh, it it wasn't hard to do. I didn't. I don't feel it was very very hard to do to imagine what it was like. Also, now chronologically, she would have been a little older than me because I made her. I guess she's 16 at a certain point in history when I would have been a little a little older, or younger, whatever. But she was approximately my age, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. Um, I mean, it's the 60s, and she gets involved with a, a very charismatic young musician, and her uncle dies, and completely unexpectedly, and this uncle was almost like her second father. And it, there are all these secrets surrounding his death and, and what happened to him, and her uncle was also a Holocaust survivor. So the two stories are connected, but you don't really know how they're connected. And there are little hints dropped along the way as to how the story of Arthur Mandelkorn in Europe, in Hungary, who, who then goes to Israel after the war, how it's connected to this young girl in Toronto in the 60s. But then you start to see how it's all interconnected. Uh, I think one of the things that stood out for you is something that stands out for me in life as well, and I've written about this. You spend two years or three years or four years in, in Auschwitz, uh, if you were lucky to survive. You're involved in some of the most dastardly work that one could possibly be involved in. And then the liberators come and you're freed and you leave. And what happens next, well, depends on... On the on the individual. Yeah, yes. the individual. And then you ultimately say, come to Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, and you meet somebody, maybe somebody who's born here. And yeah, get married and you have a child. And you raise that child of maybe two or three or four children. And eventually they have their bar about mitzvah. And then eventually, if all things go well, they get married. Mm-hmm. And there they are, these people who were gaunt, who were skeletal in these camps, most barbaric place in the world ever. And they're dancing 
at the weddings of their grandchildren and they're smiling and they're frolicking and their hands are up in the air yes. with great, great joy. And you question, how does that happen? How yes. do they do that? In fact, that's that question motivated me to write the book. It did. Yes, yeah. that was the question. How is it that people were able to go on after everything they experienced? It haunted me, that question, and I tried to deal with that in the book. And in fact, it's asked of Arthur Mandelkorn at a certain point in the novel, he has asked that. And I'm not going to tell you what he says, but that really, and it's something that haunts me, not only about the Holocaust, but it's about any kind of extreme human suffering. How do people overcome their despair? Uh, you know, or anxiety, you know, they're people that are given terrible prognoses of severe illness. And some people are shattered and other people are able to continue yeah. on. And yeah. I, I've often wondered, why is it one person, I had an aunt and uncle who uh, lost a daughter at a very young age. She was a young married woman with a child, two children. The father went into such a deep depression after his daughter died that he basically died of heartbreak. Yes. And the mother, who was my mother's sister, she was she was broken, but she continued on. She still laughed at jokes. She still continued. Two different personalities, both lost a child, but somehow their reactions were completely different. I, I want to get my head around that. Did you? To some extent, yes. What, what, what did you learn that you hadn't known when you first started? I think... What the character in my novel learns, and that's something I guess I, I guess I've learned myself, is that isolating oneself from other people, and and indulging in your own sorrow, makes it much worse, and you're much less likely to survive if you are alone. If you are part of a community of people, if you have a common goal, then that is part of the um, prescription for survival and for revival and i think i bring that out in the book too that's something that i think i have noticed i i guess the question would still remain why are those who go towards community and those who don't yes then you get to individual personalities yeah yeah and perhaps genetic predisposition and shyness versus um those who are more social and that those things are difficult, but I still think that people can overcome some of those some of those predispositions. I asked you how you related to the teenage girl, and you said I was a teenage yes. girl. <laughs> how, how did you get into the head or the psyche of the Holocaust survivor? Well, I've known a lot of Holocaust survivors. I grew up with them. Um, they lived on my street. I have some distant relatives who were Holocaust survivors. Right. And I've always been fascinated by them. I've always asked them a lot of questions. Uh, I wasn't one of those people who didn't want to ask. I often asked. And sometimes they would tell me. So I guess I ask a lot of questions. You're I'm curious. a very curious person. Yeah, I am too. So, you know, I like hearing people's stories. That's just... Is your writing a curse at all? Uh, no, no. No, it's not a curse. I don't look at it that way. So what a writer writes is not necessarily projecting their own lives. No, not necessarily. No. Not necessarily. I don't tend to write specifically about myself. Some people do. I, I know that. Some people write very autobiographically. 
and I don't. I There's a bit of me in all my characters, but only a little bit. Do you, Here do, and there. Do you miss them when the book is done? Oh, yeah. You miss I your really characters? I really do. Yeah? I do, yeah. And therefore, your next novel, uh, you're going to bring in a character from your first yeah, novel. I, yes, he might make up. There's one character who is going to make a cameo appearance. I thought that was cute. Yeah, yeah. Well, people <laughs> often ask me after they read the novel, they want me to continue. They want a sequel. And I always say to them, well, maybe one day, but at least I'm going to bring back yeah, yeah. Finn. He's one of the characters. I said, I'm bringing Finn into this next novel. Well, Sharon, when we finished reading The Sign, the short story that yes. you wrote, um, I wanted to know what happened that night. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, how was the dance? And when they did a slow dance, did she hold his hand? Right? Yeah, well. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Maybe I'll write a sequel to it. I, I look forward know. to it. But it's it's part of the imaginary um, consequence yeah. of a short story. It is. Yes, it is. So we are uh, going to wrap up. Okay. Um, did you have a good time? It was great. It was nice. It was really great. I yeah. enjoyed it too. Yeah, Thank great you. to chat. Could have gone on for another hour. Yeah. Don't you feel like we're really close friends now? Yeah. I do too. Yeah. It's funny. Both grew up in Toronto and yeah. never knew each other. Never knew each other. So what I'd like to do before we wrap up is a bit of a synopsis of the show. Take two or three things out of it that uh, my listeners can learn from. So I think one of the things that that we can all learn from is that you're tenacious. And in <laughs> fact, that's a word that you used in describing yourself. You said it's one of your strongest qualities. Like yes. you don't back down. No, I no. don't. In fact, the original title of Come Back For Me was Tenacity. Oh, is that? That was the original title. It's good you change it. Yeah, it wasn't a good title for no. a novel, but that yeah. was the title. Yeah. yeah. What else would you uh, like people to take out of this interview? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess, um, other than tenacity, not giving up, is to try to understand people, give them another chance, to allow people to tell their stories without judging them too quickly that there's often a lot beneath the surface. And that's what really interests me. And I hope that people that read my work will uh, learn to do that a bit more. Very good, very good. And I, I think too that um, pursuing a passion in life is what life is all about. You know, we often speak, speak about, uh, on the show I've mentioned logotherapy, which was Viktor Frankl's yes. form of psychology. And essentially what he said was, that a person can be cured of mental illness if they find meaning and purpose in life. Yes. And I don't know if that's a definitive statement, but I happen to subscribe to its core, to its essence. And the fact that you found your passion and you pursued it, I think that's everything. I mean, you were 18 years old when you picked up that book <laughs> in that bookstore yes. in, in Toronto on Bloor Street. And look what came out of that moment. I know, although I kept changing my... <laughs> But we all do. My goals. Yeah. But you came back to it. <laughs> I did. I did. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's funny how sometimes the smallest thing yeah. can turn your life in a particular direction. Yes. If you allow it to. And right. I mean, there were other things too, which I didn't mention, but um, it was the Agdon stories. But also, I happened to see Emil Fackenheim on television. Right around that time. He great, was being, great philosopher. Great philosopher. And he was being interviewed. And I was so 
taken by that interview that I decided, and I had taken a year off from university. I mean, I, I hadn't gone to university directly. I took a year off between high school and university. I just said, I am going to U of T, and I'm going to study with that man. And you did. And I did. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what are the odds? I happened to be, you know, flipping around the TV set, and that I came upon this interview. So, again, it it's beshared, I guess you'd say. Do you feel like you have tons of characters floating around your head? No. Tons no. of words, sentences. No, no, that's my that's my uh, protagonist in my new novel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but not me. Okay. Do you I, need to write? No. Huh. Most writers say they do. I don't need to, huh. but I'm much happier when I do. Right. Right. So if I want to be happy, I write. Very good. Very good. Well, I want to thank you for being my guest. Great to be here. Yeah, quite enjoyed it. Was it was really a lot of fun. Yeah, quite enjoyed it. And I want to wish you congratulations, too, on your novel. Uh, it was Thank an award you. winner. It Yeah, it was um, selected by the Historical, the Historical Novel Society as one of their, uh, I don't know what they call it, prime books, key books, um, choice books of the year. And it was also right. shortlisted for the GOTO Award for Historical Fiction. So it's, yeah. That's it's terrific. You must have felt like a million bucks. I did. Good yeah. for you. Yeah, it was great. It was very Yeah, when your peers say, wow, that's well written, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fabulous. So thank you, too, to my listeners uh, for being part of this. We have some great shows coming up. And if you have a chance, take a look at past episodes. Um, this is a pretty exciting show, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and the more listeners we get, the better. So if you can subscribe to the show, that would be great as well. Uh, go to hatradio.ca. And uh, we will be back next week with another uh, most compelling interview. And until then, thank you for listening. And this has been Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? I love it. That's good, eh? Love it. Yeah, yeah. thank you. God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room. Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the high